Welcome to the Hard Attitudes session. So we'll get started. Uh, just, does everyone have a handout? I think we hand them all out. Okay. The purpose of that, obviously, is to give you something to take notes on, but also to make sure you get the wording on these right. I'm just curious as we get started, how many of you are familiar with the Hard Attitudes? Okay. More than half, probably. That's great. And what, the way I'm going to be doing this, I'm going to be sharing some things on each of the Hard Attitudes, and then... Um, I want to wrap up the time with questions, so use those blanks to take notes, but then also think through, as I'm talking, think through some questions uh, that you have. The type of questions that would be helpful would be, you know, application type questions. How would you do this in this kind of situation? Uh, try not to talk about anyone in a room here. That would be awkward, so, but, you know, how, how would I apply this in this kind of situation or any other questions you have about it, and then we'll end the time with those questions. So let me pray, and then we'll get started. Father, you, your word says that you form the hearts of um, every person, and then you consider everything we do. So uh, we pause this afternoon and thank you for giving us the kind of hearts that we have, the kind of hearts that can make decisions and set directions and make plans. And it's our intention to live in a way that is uh, pleasing to you, and we really need your help and understanding to do that. So I pray as we talk about uh, these attitudes of the heart, that you would um, you'd speak to us personally about the areas in which our attitude uh, is off and in the areas in which we need to take some steps. So I pray you'd speak to us this afternoon. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, when Dan did a seminar, I think it was Monday night um, or Monday afternoon before dinner, uh, if you were in that seminar, he was talking about kind of professionalism, I think it was, in the new, um, new reality, the new normal. And it was just a great session about the kinds of things that um, are out there in the marketplace and the economy, the challenges and the, and the specific ways that you can prepare yourself to be able to survive in the new normal of the economy. And this is kind of the, um, the other side, the relationship side, really, of that piece. If you look at most of the research on um, job creation as well as job loss or job employment issues, the top reason why people lose their job or do not get promoted is a relationship reason. It's usually not a competency reason, although that's a, a factor. But the top reason is often they can't get along and work together as a team. They can't work under authority. They can't um, handle relationships well. And so people eventually, they don't care how much you know or how good you are. If you're just irritating to be around, um, you know, people don't want you around, you lose your job. So this is kind of the relationship side um, of that. So I wanted to tell you that because this doesn't relate just to uh, Christian ministry or a church. Uh, this has application there, obviously, but beyond that. One of the questions I get asked a whole lot uh, because I pastor a church is, uh, how's Seabreeze doing? You know, by people who are not in Seabreeze. So uh, I'll get that question often. So how's Seabreeze doing? And I never exactly know how to answer that. So, of course, my short answer is, good. And then if they want to ask more, they'll ask more. Usually that's about all they want to know and it's kind of a polite question. But it puts me in a little um, quandary because how, how you, do you answer that question? How, how is a, say, a church doing or how's challenge doing? Well, usually what people are asking is how many people are coming around and how's the money? You know, what's, what's the attendance and what's the budget? But, of course, Jesus didn't come just to gather uh, crowds or to produce balanced budgets, Jesus came to change our hearts. And so the best way to answer that question is how are the hearts of the people who are hanging around? And of course, there's, there's really no way to measure that. 
There's no way to say, well, yeah, we've got you know, about 20% of people that are getting it, about 30% aren't getting it, and 30% are growing. It's just really hard to do that kind of stuff. And God is the one that really evaluates how we're doing personally and how the ministries that we're a part of are doing. And so God is always looking into our hearts to see how it is that we're doing. And by heart, I don't mean how you feel, your emotions, or I don't mean uh, how passionate you are about something. In the Bible, the heart is the word that's used to describe the control center of your life, the very center or essence of who you are as a person on a soul level. Uh, everything you do and everything you say originates in your heart. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's out of what comes in our heart that produces what we do. And what shapes a heart most is its set of attitudes. Um, an attitude is, is a position or an angle from which you approach the different situations of life. Uh, you can, as you get to know people, you'll usually pick up some of their dominant attitudes. Some people are just angry all the time. So their predominant angle on life as they handle challenges is to get upset. Uh, other people kind of take a, a victim angle on life. Kind of no matter what happens to them, you know, they're the victims and, and it wasn't their fault and someone else did this. And that's kind of their, their default approach or angle on life. Some people are, you know, they, they take a very positive attitude on life. They, they're talking about, you know, positive things all the time. They're happy. You know, that's a person that has a good angle on life. Sometimes people take a lazy angle on life. You know, they're just not willing to work hard. So there's, there's just a bunch of attitudes that we have rattling around inside our hearts. Now, on a plane, I don't know how many of you have ever flown in a private plane or maybe seen the control panel of a, of a plane, one of the most important um, indicators on the dash of a plane is called an attitude indicator. And I don't have a picture of it, but uh, if I describe it, you, maybe you've seen it before, but it's a round dial and it's divided in half. The top half is blue, which stands for the sky. And the bottom half is usually brown, which stands for the ground. And then you've got the shape of a wing on both sides, usually white. And that wing kind of moves you know, this way or that way, depending on the angle of the plane or the attitude of the plane relative to the horizon. Now, the reason that's an important indicator is because when you're flying, uh, it's easy to get disoriented. Not even if it's just night or fog, but especially if it's you know, foggy, you're flying in the clouds. It's, it's very easy to, to not you know, get a, a clear bearing on where the horizon is. And if your attitude gets off, each plane is designed to handle a tolerance or within a certain attitude. I had a good friend that was a commercial airline pilot, and he said that most of the commercial planes, their tolerance is about 25%, which means kind of that angle. Uh, if you take that plane more than that, then it begins to stress the wings, and eventually the, the plane will fall apart. So it's a very important thing to understand that you know, the attitude of the plane has to, has to be operated within the design tolerances. And planes have these attitude indicators because they're flying in a real world. And not all attitudes or angles are safe for flying. And physics, physics are real, so you, you want to make sure that you're within the design tolerance. Now the same thing is true with our heart. Jesus teaches us attitudes for the very same reason. because. Our attitude, our angle from which we approach the challenges and the situations of life will more than anything else really determine how well life goes for us personally. 
Now, there's circumstances we can't control, just like turbulence when a plane flies. But the angle from which you approach these things will really determine how well life goes for you, generally. Now, I know at, uh, at Christian Challenge, you guys have adopted five hard attitudes that summarize much of what the New Testament says about the angle from which we are to approach uh, the people that we relate to. So these, these attitudes are primarily relational attitudes, how we relate to each other. And the reason these are so important is because, well, Jesus, when asked, what's the most important commandment? He said, well, it's to love God with all of your heart and soul and mind. And he said, the second's like it, which means they're, they're hinged together. You can't really separate these. And the second is to love your neighbors yourself. So from God's perspective, the, the way we relate to each other is number two on the all-time most important list. And it's attached to the way we relate to God. What he's saying is you can't love God. It actually says this in 1 John. You can't claim to love God whom you have not seen and then not love people who you can see. Those two go together. So if you love God, then you will love people. So this is, this is the top priority in the heart of God. And that's why these attitudes give us an indicator. It would be nice if our, there was some kind of dial where you could look at like a, you know, on the dash of a plane and see, oh, my attitude's way off. Uh, but obviously there's no physical way to check that. And so these hard attitudes give you um, a diagnostic tool to kind of evaluate the way you're relating to people and the way you're handling things and allow you to begin to make some adjustments. And uh, these, these attitudes, as I was saying, they, they apply not just to, in a church context or in a Christian challenge ministry context. They apply in a work environment. They apply in a family environment. They apply in a school environment. They apply in a nonprofit environment. They apply, they apply in dorm life. They apply on team sports. I mean, anytime people gather together, these attitudes, if they're done, will, will dramatically improve not only what the group is able to do, but how well the group enjoys doing it, and therefore the, you know, the productivity of it. So let me go through these five then, and then we'll, we're going to take some time to deal with some questions. So the first one is, Putting the goals and interests of others above my own. Now, this is the commitment to love others. Like I said, it's the second greatest commandment. Now, if I had said this attitude is to love others, um, you probably would have said, okay, yeah, I know I'm supposed to love others. Got it. But the way this is worded it gives you a clear indicator as to whether you're actually doing this or not. That's why these are all worded uh, in terms of action phrases. So you can know for sure whether or not you, you are doing this in this situation or not. If you ask most people, um, are you loving well? They would say, well, you know, I think so. But if you ask someone in this situation, in that conversation, at lunch, when you sat down around the table, did you take any time to put the goals and interests of someone at that table above your own? Well, when you, when you get that specific, then you can think, huh, you know what? I don't think I even thought about the people in that category. That's why it's so important to understand that this is a clear definition of love. This is an action statement. This is the way Jesus defines love, and he models this kind of love. This attitude comes out of Philippians 2, 3 through 4. So let me read it to you. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude 
should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And it goes on to talk specifically how Jesus displayed this attitude of putting the goals and interests of others above his own. So our normal attitude, the normal angle from which we approach people, I mean, we just walk up to someone, we sit down at dinner, we walk into a room, we walk into a classroom, we walk into a work environment, and we begin to relate to people. The default setting, the normal angle from which we approach people is, what can they do for me? How can they help me? How can they make me feel better? How can they, what, in whatever way it is, what can they do for me? That's just our natural setting. We have to choose a different setting to be different. This, this natural setting is called selfish ambition. This is just how we're wired. We are naturally selfish. Nobody has to work on this. You don't have to practice this. You don't have to train for this. This just oozes out of the pores of our soul like sweat out of our glands. I mean, it just, it just happens. We have selfish ambition. Now, why do we have this attitude? Well, it's because of the next phrase in this verse is, is vain conceit. Vain is another word for pride. Conceit is another word for pride. And together, what they basically mean is we just think we're more important. Now, if we were to be asked, someone asked you, do you think you're the most important person in this room? I mean, no one would have the courage to say, yes, I believe I am. But that's the angle from which we approach people. My needs, my interests, what I want to accomplish is more important than anyone else. That's, that's just our, again, that's our default setting. I mean, I, I had this attitude just a few weeks ago at Best Buy. I was trying to return something, and I, got, I, I walked in, and you know, if you ever try to return something at Best Buy, and you see there's a long line, you realize, oh, man, I'm going to be here an hour. But I walked in, there was only two people in front of me, so I thought, oh, good, this is going to be in and out. I've got a lot to do. So I got in my place in line. I was number three. And the person in front of me, you know, the spot opened up, and they went in front of me, and they proceeded to have one of these I don't know what it was, but it was a complicated problem. And 15 minutes later, I'm still standing there. And as the time went on, I was, I mean, it was all I could do just to not step up and say, Did, you, is there any way we could speed this up? So what I was displaying, I mean, you probably had this experience. What I was displaying was that my agenda, I've got to be places. What I want to get done is more important. I don't even know what this problem is over here, but I, 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 need, to, I need to get out of here. I've got places to be and got things that I have to do. And that, that's just our natural setting. I, I didn't walk in there and say, okay, now, let's display selfish ambition. No, that's just, I've got an agenda, I've got things to do, and this situation is in the way of what I want to do. Because I, I think my agenda is more important than anyone else's. Now, Jesus had a very different attitude. He would, as it says in this verse, consider others to be more important than him. Now, clearly they weren't. I mean, he was God in flesh. So if Jesus is in the room, who's the most important person? Jesus. But in spite of that fact, he would consider other people to be more important than him. And what that meant is he would treat them like they were by looking to their interests. Now, that didn't mean he would do whatever they wanted him to do. I mean, sometimes people would approach Jesus and say, you know, can you do what I ask you to do? And Jesus would say, well, what do you want me to do? You know, he wouldn't commit to it. He'd find out what it was and decide whether it was a good thing to do. But he would regularly decide to take the interest of someone else and set it above his own interest. Now, it, what it meant fundamentally is that he would sacrifice 
his own time, his own effort, well, ultimately his own life for the interests of others like us. And so now what this verse says is, is if you're going to follow him, then you need to adopt the same approach to life, the same approach to people, the same angle, the same attitude. Now, this doesn't mean you ignore yourself. You know, it says not only your own interests. So that indicates that it's okay to take care of yourself. But what it's saying is that basically it's saying, why don't you take a break from yourself and consider someone else? You know, one of the common ideas in our culture right now is that you take care of yourself first, and then with what's left over, then you can help other people. But of course, the problem with that is if you take care of yourself first, that tends to become a full-time job. And there's just no time left over. So the Christ attitude is, no, no, you do, you balance your needs and the things you have to do, but you regularly decide to put the interests of someone else above what you want in this situation. And then you decide to sacrifice some of your time, some of your thought, some of your effort, maybe some of your money to help them achieve what they're interested in. That's, that's what love is. That's very practical. So rather than approach people from the angle of what can we get out of this relationship, we choose to consider and act on what we can do to be of real help to them. Now, let's get real practical on this before we move on to the next attitude. I, I challenge you at some point to try this. In a conversation, you know, maybe dinner tonight. Now, if you all did it, it might get a little weird, but so maybe wait for another time when no one's suspecting that you're doing this. But walk into a social situation where there's at least another person, and uh, I guess that would be the definition of a social situation. <laughs> if it's just you, that's something else, else that we have to address later. But walk into a situation with other people and begin, first of all, to think about who in this room or in this conversation or around this table has a need that I could maybe help them with? What could I say or what could I do to help them, to serve them? Now, I, um, in my experience, this is almost unheard of. I mean, usually what we do when we walk into a situation is we are kind of assessing what's going on. We've got our own interests. Maybe we don't want to be embarrassed. Maybe we want people to like us, maybe whatever it is. And we begin to talk and we begin to say things based on what our interests are. And we tend to not even think about that sitting around this table or around this room or in this person I'm talking to is a set of interests, a set of needs. I wonder what some of them would be. And then what could I do to serve them, to help them, to advance that? And I would encourage you just to begin to practice that, just that thought process. Just walk into a situation and try to figure out who here would God want me to help? And what, what interest can I put above my own? What can I do to help? So that's the first hard attitude. The second one is living an honest and open life. This is the commitment to take your sin seriously. 1 John 1, 5 through 7 is the passage in the New Testament that well, there's several, but this is one of the ones that describes this attitude. It says, this is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' his son purifies us from all sin. So let me define a few things here. To walk in the light means to be honest about who we are. Now, if we were to turn all the lights off here, we'd probably get a little light because it's light outside that would be coming in. But if it was nighttime, we turned all the lights off in this room. All of a sudden, we wouldn't be able to see the truth of where the chairs are, where people are. And if we began to move in the dark, we would stumble, we would fall, we would run into things because we, we couldn't see the truth. We couldn't see the reality of where the objects were. And so when we walk in the light, that means that, that we are not hiding who we are. We're not covering up who we are. We're honest about who we are. And that's so important because the light is where God dwells. Because as it says in this verse, he is light. He is the source of truth. And light and dark don't exist together. You know, if you walk into a dark room and you turn on the light, immediately the darkness is gone. Because you, you can't have them, they're, they're mutually exclusive. They don't exist together. So if God is light, in other words, if he only operates in the realm of light, truth, honesty, and we decide to step into the shadows and be dishonest about who we are and cover up who we are, we think we're protecting ourselves from, from maybe being embarrassed or exposed because there's some things about us that, well, we're embarrassed about. But what we're actually doing is we're stepping away from the realm in which God operates. We're moving away from God at that point. And we're suddenly in a realm where God is not able to help us because we've moved away from him. One of the best ways I, I think to describe this is sin is a, it's a nocturnal creature. You know, a nocturnal creature is a, an animal that only comes out at night. Um, you know, if you got up around 2 in the morning here, you might see some raccoons running around. You won't see them running around in the daylight because raccoons are nocturnal creatures. You wake up in the morning and you might see the trash cans they dug in, but you won't see them do it during the day. They feed and they move at night. And sin is a nocturnal creature. It's a living force inside of us that, that feeds and grows and gains power and strength in the dark, in the shadows, in the hiddenness. And if you bring your sin into the light... And, and begin to tell someone you trust about what it is that you're struggling with, all of a sudden, sin loses its power. Because it, it doesn't feed in the night. It doesn't grow in the night. It doesn't prowl in the night. It, it doesn't gain power in the night. So one of the, if you're struggling with a particular sin or a particular pattern of sin, one of the most powerful things you can do is to tell someone who's a Christ follower that you trust what you're really struggling with. Now, that doesn't mean instantly now you're not going to struggle with the sin, but at that point you have now stepped from the dark and into the light, and you have now begun to cut the nerve of the power of that sin. What we tend to do when we struggle with a sin, particularly one we're ashamed of, is we just hope no one ever finds out. And we just, we just keep hiding, we just keep covering it up, we just keep moving it into the dark. And then we keep wondering why this thing, this sin, you know, keeps being so powerful inside of us. It's because we, we, we keep it in the dark. We don't, we don't drag it in the light. When you drag it in the light, it, it begins to wither. It begins to, its power begins to fade at that point. So what this attitude means is that rather than approaching life, trying to cover up what we struggle with, we are appropriately honest. 
See, the normal angle on life is if, if there's something embarrassing about me, if there's something that, you know, is, is, is shameful about me, then I don't want anyone to know about that. I do everything I can to put a front on that or to cover that up. I, I don't tell anyone about what I'm really struggling with. That's the normal angle. That's almost, that's just our reflex. But the attitude of the New Testament is no, we confess our sins to one another. We, we bring the sin of the light. We walk in the light. You know, when you walk, uh, a step is not, you know, a, a, is not walking. That's just a lunge. Okay, so you don't just make one move. But this is an ongoing process. You continually are honest about the sin that you're struggling with. Now, we are appropriately honest. Let me just talk about that a little bit. Um, the light that we step into is not stage light like this. Okay, in other words, we don't get up in front of a group like this and say, "Okay, let me tell you something really horrible about myself." Publicly, you know, we don't do that. Um, what we do is with relationships that we can trust, people that really care about us, who are Christ followers also, we tell them the truth. So what this attitude means, if you're doing this attitude, what this means is that there is no secret about who you are that some other brother or sister in Christ doesn't know and is helping you with. There's nothing about your life that's hidden. There's nothing about your life that you're thinking, boy, I hope, I hope no one ever finds out about this. You know, we, we walk in the light. Because that's how God begins to help us deal with the sin and begin to change. So, that's, the, um, that's attitude number two. Attitude number three is, be willing to give and receive scriptural correction. This is the commitment to grow. And this one like all the others, but this one especially feels pretty unnatural to us. Because when it comes to our own growth and development, we tend to have the attitude that it's nobody's business but our own. But that's not the attitude of Scripture. Hebrews 3.13 says, Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, this is another one of those phrases, like the, the verses like I was talking about this morning, where it says, forgive five times. This one says, encourage one another today, as long as it's called today. <laughs> well, didn't he just say today? So if I say, hey, let's meet today, as long as it's called today. Like, are you stuttering? Or, I mean, you already told me we're meeting today. Why do you say it again? Well, in the New Testament, when the writer repeats this, it's, it's for emphasis. It's a way of putting an exclamation point. What he's saying is that it only takes one day for us to get discouraged and for sin to begin to harden our hearts. And so what we need is, is we need people around us to help us, encourage us, so that sin doesn't harden our hearts. What this means is that we all have blind spots. You know what a blind spot is. You're driving down the freeway and um, if you don't look, you just look at your mirror uh, and you decide to move into the next lane, well, if there's a car or a truck right there, and you didn't turn around to look, well, you, you turn right into the thing. It's because there's a, the mirror only reveals a certain amount, your eyes only reveal a certain amount, and so if you don't turn all the way around, there's a blind spot that you can't see. Same thing is true of us personally. Um, just by nature of who we are, there's many things about ourselves that we, we just can't see. Now, other people around us they can see some of these things. And so we need their help 
to identify our blind spots. Otherwise, our growth is going to be limited just simply by what occurs to us, by what we see. And because we're naturally selfish, we tend to not be willing to be that honest about ourselves. And so our growth is stunted and we don't really change that much. So if we're going to grow, we need to see what other people see. We need to be willing to hear correction. And we need someone who is willing to risk telling us of our blind spots and caring enough about us so that we can see what they see. But who's going to do that? I mean, let's just pause for a moment. That's, that's a risky conversation, isn't it? I mean, to walk up to someone and say, you know, here's, here's something. You may not see this about yourself, but I've, I've noticed, and then share, here, here's, here's the thing that you do, or here's something that I've seen you do this repeatedly. And I'd really like to help you maybe grow in this area. I mean, who does that? Not many people. This is a very unusual attitude. But what Scripture says is we need people to do this, to encourage us. How often? Daily. As long as it's called today. So the people that will have the courage to say this and the people that we will listen to are those who are encouraging. That's why it says encourage one another. So if someone is becoming hardened by sin's deceitfulness, it's describing a process, not an instant you know, solidification, but a process by which their hearts are, are kind of turning from God in this area. And the only way to begin to correct someone and get them back on track is to encourage them. Because if someone's an encourager to you, are you open to hear input from them? Those are the only ones you're open to. And if someone just walks up to you and says, hey, I don't know if you noticed this, but here's something that you do that I think is really you know, harmful to people or harmful to you. Not many of us would be, oh, well, well thank you. What was your name again? Thank you so much for criticizing me. It'd be really hard for us to take that. But if there's someone who has a pattern, you know, a regular, maybe daily pattern, where they're, they're on your team. I mean, they're encouraging you. They're, they're in your corner. They, they, they say things that add courage to your life. And then, in the middle of all of this encouragement, they pause and they say, you know, I've been praying about this for some time, and, and I, I know this may be hard, but... I, I think you don't see this. And I think it's really important for you to see this. Here's what scripture says, and here's what I see you doing. And I, I really, I've been praying for you about this, and you know, I, I want to help you with this. Well, there's a chance that we'll still react and say, hey, none of your business. But because they've got a history of encouraging us, there's a good chance that we might take the encouragement and we might grow. Because what this is saying is that if, if your own growth is only ever your responsibility, then you're not going to grow that much. It's important for us to build around us relationships that we trust with people not only that we can be honest with, but who can be honest with us. See, this light needs to go both ways. We tell them what we're struggling with, and then appropriately they tell us what they see. Because growing in Christ is more important than our pride. It's more important than that, you know, we never get criticized or we never have anyone give us input. There's more at stake than that. So that's why we have to be willing to give and receive scriptural correction. So this is, this is not my big ideas about you. This is something that's in scripture that, that we're blind to. And we need 
encouragement. So the angle from which we approach people is rather than just watch people struggle with life, we, we pick out a few people that we pray for and that we love and that we encourage. And then rather than making their growth nobody's business but their own, we, we give input. And then on the receiving side, we do the same thing. We're willing to receive input. One of the things that I encourage you on this is, is to make it clear to the people around you who are close that you really want their input. You know, tell them, I, I want you to tell me what you see. Ask some questions. Is there anything that, as you see me relate to people, as you see me handle my responsibilities, as you see me move through you know, this week, is there anything that, that, that maybe I'm not aware of that, that you see? Because it would be a real help to me. You make it easy for people to, to give you some input or give you some correction on this. What I'll often do is if there's someone that I, I feel like God might want me to say something to, I'll, I'll kind of test the waters. Because you, you can't force this on people. So I'll test the waters and I might share with them something that I've learned in this area. I haven't said anything about them, but I've said, you know, one of the things I've learned over time is, and I'll say something in this area. And if they ask follow-up questions, really, well, tell me about that. Well, then maybe they're open to correction. But if they immediately change the subject, I know. They're not open. So you don't force this on people. But you want to you build relationships where this is just a part of the culture, giving and receiving scriptural correction. The fourth attitude is maintaining clear relationships. This is the commitment to forgive. Matthew 5, 23 through 24 says, Therefore, and by the way, let me, if you have questions on these, you might have a bunch on this last one. Just go ahead and make note of those, and we'll, we'll cover them when we get done here. Matthew 5, 23-24, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now, when Jesus first said this, he was speaking to, obviously, Jewish people, who, who this, this, um, these verses paint a clear image for them. Jesus was talking about the annual um, festival uh, at the temple where people would bring their tithes, for the tithes and offerings for the year. So for a large number of people in Israel, they, they weren't close enough to Jerusalem to every week, you know, bring 10% of their harvest or 10% of their income to the temple as the tithe. And of course, there was no online giving, no way to do that at that point. So what they would do is they would just save up this 10%. And then they would bring it in the form of money or coins sometimes livestock, they would bring it to Jerusalem once a year for this massive festival. And so Jesus is describing the scene where these people now, once a year, have gathered, and there's this giant line forming uh, to the temple uh, treasury to give these tithes, their annual tithe. So just imagine how long that line is. I mean, it's just constantly a line of people. So you get in this line, and let's say maybe you're halfway through the line, and all of a sudden what Jesus is saying here is you remember that there's a break in a relationship with someone. Maybe on the trip out, you had an argument with someone. Or maybe on the way to the temple, you know, you spoke harshly to your wife, or whatever it was. But you realize there's a problem in, in the relationship. Someone is offended. There, there's an issue here. What Jesus said is shocking. He said, I want you to leave your gift there. You mean my annual gift? 10% of everything I've made this year just kind of what, set it on the dirt and walk away from it and go and be reconciled and then come back and give my gift then? 
That, this was shocking to people. Couldn't I just finish first? Couldn't I just like, I mean, I'm halfway through the line. Do I have to go all the way back to the back? And can, can I just kind of continue and finish this gift? And what Jesus was saying by explaining this in this context, he didn't just say, hey, you know, be good if you would clear up your relationships. He said, I want you to understand this is, this is top priority. So as you move through your days and you become aware that there's a break in relationship, this isn't something you back burner. This is something that you move to the front. And you say, you know what, I'm, I'm going I'm to deal with this as of first importance. So when we clear up a relationship, it always involves two steps. The first is go, and the second is be reconciled. That's what it says in this verse, go and be reconciled. Go means you talk to the person face to face. Now, whenever there's a, there's a conflict between people, is the tendency to go talk to the person face to face or to talk about the person behind their back? The latter, right? I mean, that's our tendency. You know, if, if you have a conflict with someone, you're upset with someone, the tendency is not to immediately go to them and say, hey, we need to talk about this. Let's see if we can clear this up. The tendency is to go to someone else and badmouth this person you're upset with. Why do we do that? Whenever we talk behind the back about someone we're upset with, we retain full editing rights to the story. See what I'm saying? Um, if, if I've had a conflict with someone and I go and talk to them, I can't shave any of what actually happened. I can't edit. I can't change it at all to make me look better. <clears throat> the reason is because they were there. And if I only leave in the parts that they did bad and I leave out the parts that I did bad, they'll remind me. You know, we, we have two kids growing up, and I saw this all the time. We, we'd hear some conflict. We'd run into the room, and, you know, one would say, he bit me. And the other would say, well, you hit me. And then we'd ask them to tell us what happened. And as they would describe their stories, it was like they were in two separate planets. I mean, they they. There was no, no, no facts lined up at all because one was saying everything that made them look good. And the other was saying everything that made them look good. This is the way we retain editing rights. You know, we, we tell, when we tell other people behind the back, we make ourselves look good and them look horrible. And we leave out the parts where maybe we did something that was wrong. So this is why scripture says you go to them. You don't go talk to someone else about them. You go to them. This, this happens all the time. People will come to me and say, you know, I've got a problem with so-and-so. Have you talked to them? No. We can't talk then. You go talk to them. If the two of you need help, I'd be happy to help, but I can't broker this reconciling of the relationship. You go to them, you talk to them face-to-face, -face, not behind the back. Also, what that tends to do is it only, it, it brings to, you only bring to the surface the things that really are important. A lot of times people get upset about really petty things, and they'll talk to other people about it, but they realize, you know, if I went and told the other person, you know what, I was really upset because you looked funny at me, it sounds really goofy and silly, because it is goofy and silly, and you should just let it go. So you kind of clear things up, sometimes without even needing to talk to the person. But you go to them face-to-face, -face, rather than talk about them behind the back. Then the next part is be reconciled. You figure out the wrong that was done, you fix it, then you ask them to forgive you. Now, very few people have learned how to reconcile relationships. All we do right now is we go up to someone and we say what? Sorry. Sorry. Sorry, the word sorry literally means, you know, I feel sorrow, which is good. 
but it doesn't clear anything up. You know, it's like kind of the bank account thing. If I said, if my bank account was overdraft and I called the bank that I'm trying to reconcile my account, I just said, sorry. Okay, well, that, that doesn't clear anything up, does it? It just means that I feel bad about it, but doesn't make it better in any way. So sorry doesn't fix anything. In fact, a few years ago, I was um, in a parking lot and I, in the car, and I was getting ready to put in reverse back out of the parking spot I was in, and I noticed that um, a car right behind me in the opposite parking spot was starting to back out too. So I stopped. I didn't move at all. I stayed in my parking spot, and I thought, well, <clears throat> they don't look like they're turning around, so I better stay in my spot. They backed up, and they just kept backing and backing and backing, and they smashed straight into me. I, was, I hadn't moved out at all. I just was in my parking spot. They just backed right into me. So, of course, once we hit, you know, we both got out, and it was a, a gal, and she was, I could tell she was a newer driver and kind of shaken by the whole experience. And she had, seriously, she had put it in reverse and just didn't even turn around, didn't, you know, didn't look at all, just backed straight into me. And she looked at me, and she looked at the bumper that she had smashed, and she said, sorry. And she got back in her car and started driving away. And I ran up to her and said, wait, 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 wait. You can't just say sorry and drive away. We, we have damage here. You know, you got to pay for this. But she was actually, I mean, this is what people tend to do. Smash, oh, sorry, and then they move away. It's like, no, 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 to reconcile, the, the damage needs to be dealt with. Now, the, the struggle with reconciling is if the damage was always a messed up bumper, you could say, okay, here's 500 bucks or 600 bucks or $3,000 or whatever bumpers cost now and the damage can be fixed. But a lot of the damage we do is relational, and, and we can't just pay for it. You know, I, I was harsh with you. Well, how, how much, is that 100 bucks? Would that make that better, 100 bucks? I don't know, 400 bucks? If I yelled at you, well, I need $1,000 before I feel better about that. You know, well, money doesn't you know, pay for relational harm and damage that's done. So the only way reconciling can occur is if, Someone who's done the damage asked you to forgive them, or if you've done the damage, you ask them to forgive you. So part of reconciling is to figure out, well, what's the wrong that's been done? And if you've sinned, then rather than say, well, I'm sorry, say, would you forgive me for being harsh with you? And then give them a chance to say yes. That's how it's cleared up. So you both try to figure out what, what's, been, what's the wrong that's been done. Now, here's the challenge in this is if you talk to someone and you confess your sin, you say, you know what, I was harsh or I, I was dishonest or whatever it was that you did that was wrong, and you ask them to forgive you, and they decide to forgive you, but what if there's all kinds of stuff that they need to ask forgiveness and they don't? Well, at that point, you, you have reason not to trust them, but you still have to forgive them. A good way of saying is if, if, someone, if you loan someone $1,000, and they're supposed to pay you back in a month, and they don't. And um, they don't ever pay you back. Well, you can forgive them for that debt, but it's wise not to trust them and loan them another $1,000 because they haven't reconciled. So you, you can't, it takes two people to reconcile. You can't force reconciling. You can attempt reconciling, but you can forgive. You just may be wise to not trust them with the same kinds of things and at the same level you did before because they've not reconciled the relationship. But you try to reconcile, and if it can't be reconciled, you at least let it go so it doesn't turn into bitterness. This is so important because what happens in groups is if this isn't done, 
and two people are upset with each other, instead of talking to each other, they go talk to two other people. Now, what are those two people supposed to do with that, that issue? Well, they can't go to the people originally and talk about it and clear it up because they're not even supposed to know about it. So what do they do with that information? They go talk to some other people. And those people talk to some other people. So pretty soon you have a whole group over here that's upset with these people, and these people are upset with these people. And it just causes division in a group. You know, in, in business, this is called office politics. You know, people are just, there's groups that are just upset with each other. Because relation, individual relationships have not been repaired. They've not been cleared up. So this, this will kill a, a group of any kind of church, uh, a work environment, a sports team, uh, a challenge ministry, whatever. So that's number four, maintain clear relationships. Number five, the last one, follow spiritual leadership within scriptural guidelines. This is the commitment to follow. Again, very un-American, um, but very scriptural. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, if Jesus were physically you know, here to lead us in our job environment or in our churches or in our ministries, we would have no problem following him. But the problem is Jesus isn't here physically anymore. God doesn't show up physically. Organizations are led by, well, people like me. And the problem with people like me is we're just flawed human beings. We don't always know the best thing to do. But what Scripture indicates is God puts a face on his authority. And the face is the people he puts in positions of authority. All we see is the face. Like people in my church, all they see is Bevan. What they tend not to see is that God has put me in this position, and therefore they're to follow my leadership within scriptural limits. If I take them out of bounds scripturally, they need not follow. But within scriptural limits, they need to follow because God's the one who's put me in this position. Now, I think this takes faith on both sides. It takes faith on the leader side, and it takes faith on the follower side. On the leader side, for me, it takes faith to believe that God is doing something through my leadership, even when I'm not exactly sure what I'm doing. I, mean, I remember before I um, left Hope Church in Fort Worth about you know, 23 years ago, Harold Bullock's the pastor there, and he's, he's a very wise, brilliant man. Um, he's had a huge impact on my life. But the last year before I left, I began wondering about why, why Harold didn't do this and why he wouldn't do that and how come he wouldn't do this. And I began thinking I might know better than Harold. And then I moved and started pastoring my own church, and I realized, oh, my goodness. I didn't have a clue. It looks very different to be in the leader's position than it does to be in the follower's position. So for me as a leader, and if God moves you into leadership, it takes faith to believe that God is moving through even your imperfections and even when you don't know exactly what to do. On the follower's side, it takes faith to believe that God's moving through imperfect people like us. And to follow them. And this verse in Hebrews 13, 17 gives two clues as to how we are supposed to follow. It says, obey and submit. The word obey in the Greek language means to be willing to be convinced. So the idea is we don't follow mindlessly. We ask questions. But we ask it from the angle of, help me understand this. So for example, in our church, you know, we, as leaders, we make a decision. I make a decision. We're heading this direction. Someone in the church says, I don't understand why we're doing this. Well, that's fine. 
So they ask questions. Why are we doing it this way? It gives us a chance to give answers, and they ask more questions. But they ask it from the angle of, not, not the angle of, what are you idiots doing, but from the angle of, I'm willing to be convinced. I just don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me right now. So you want people who are following with their brains. You don't want just zombies following you into the future. You want people that are actually thinking. And if they don't understand it, they need to ask questions. But from an angle of, I want to follow, but I need to understand this. Help me understand this. If after all the questions are asked and answered, they still disagree with the direction that's going, then the second word kicks in, submit. Submit means to yield. One of the best ways to explain this, you know, in, in my area, if you're, you're merging on the 405 freeway. You know, there's seven lanes of traffic, and you're trying to merge on the 405. Well, if you see a guy barreling down on you, uh, and you're both coming together at the, in the same lane, somebody has to yield, right? Or there's going to be an accident. So the decision here is if, if you're on a collision course with the leader, and it's not a scriptural issue, it's just you think it'd be better to do it this way than that way, and you've already asked your questions and you still don't agree with the decisions being made, well, at that point, you just need to back off the gas and get in behind and submit. You need to go along with the group. Don't need to spend your time saying, yeah, I never did agree with this decision. Start grumbling and complaining. That's not this attitude. That's the normal angle from which we... You know, the normal angle in our country is to criticize leadership. But in Scripture, no, no, leadership is a gift from God. It represents Him. Unless there really are bad leaders and take us out of bounds Scripture, we follow. Several years ago, there's a friend of mine um, in a church that's out of state, and you know, I was talking to her, um, and we were just chatting, and she said, oh, by the way, I'm, I, think, I think we're going to leave this church. And so I said, Really? You've been there for 15 years. Why, why would you leave this church? And she described a decision that was being made. It wasn't a scriptural decision. It was just a decision the church made about, I think, the youth ministry in particular. And she said, we just disagree with this decision. So we're going to leave. And she made this comment. She said, you know, this is the first time in 15 years that the pastor of the church has made a decision I don't agree with. And so I told her, I said, well, you know, from my understanding, is then this is the first time in 15 years where you've actually had a decision to follow. Because up to that point, you just happen to be going the same direction. You don't get following points for that. You just agreed with everything. Following occurs when you don't agree, but you still get in line behind and you follow. You know, for example, if, you know, walking, if I'm walking from that part of the lawn over here, and you're coming from the same direction, and you're, we're he- we happen to be heading the same direction, and you happen to be, I turn around and you're behind me, and I say, oh, you're, you're following me. It's like, well, no, not really. We just happen to be heading the same direction. You're not deciding to, where's Bevan going? I'm going to follow him. We just happen to be following the same direction. So leadership, following authority, is tested whenever you don't agree. And it's at that point where you have to decide, well, you know what, I'm going to follow. I'm going to get in line. I'm going to move behind. And it says if you do this, there's a tremendous advantage for that. And that's why you don't want to follow in such a way that it makes it a burden for your leader. The idea here is, um, the Greek word is sigh. You don't want to make it so that every time the leader sees you on the inside, they go, oh boy. Here they come. Wonder what the problem is now. Wonder what they're upset about now. Big sigh. You want, you want to be... Bring it a joy for your leader. 
because how well they lead is an advantage to you. There's protection for you in that. So these are the, a summary of the five hard attitudes. As I said, this, this will change church life. This will change any time there's a group of people together working together. So let me pause now, wrap up here. We've got about 10 minutes or so. So what are some of the questions that you have about any one of these, these attitudes? So the question, in case you didn't hear it, is that uh, you're trying to clear up a relationship with someone who's not a Christian so they don't have the same framework from which they're operating. So you have done wrong. You've asked for their forgiveness, and they've said, oh, yeah, you know, I forgive you. But then they keep bringing it up again. Um, what I would recommend doing at that point is just saying, you remember when we talked last time, I, I agreed with you. I, you know, I had done this wrong. And my understanding, if I, correct me if I didn't hear you right on this, but... Didn't you, didn't you forgive me for that? And if they say, oh, yeah, then, then I would say, so, so then why, why, are we, why are we bringing it? I mean, I just would, would ask, so why are we bringing this up again? Because my understanding of forgiveness is that it's, it's done. It's gone. You know, I really am sorry, and that's why I ask for your forgiveness. Um, if, if even after that kind of conversation to keep bringing it up, I think I would just say, you know, my understanding is I think we've already talked about this. And I don't think it's helpful for our relationship to keep dredging up old things like this. So if there's something else that I've done in addition to this that I haven't cleared up with you, I'd be happy to hear about that. But um, we, we've already gone over this. Yeah, because what, what that means is there, sometimes what happens, especially with those who aren't Christ followers, is if you admit to a sin, then it's almost like they've got a chip now that they can use to manipulate you with. So you just need to not agree. I mean, manipulation only occurs when you play by their rules. So you just need to say, well, I don't agree with those rules. The definition of forgiveness, from my understanding, is this. And you said this. So I'm considering this to be done. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah, yeah often for me, if I... If I have to clear up a relationship with somebody who's not a Christ follower, most, the most common response is, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no. It's like they're, they're all awkward and, you know, it's like, why are you even, no big deal, you know. It's like, well, no, it was wrong, and I really appreciate you forgiving me. So I'll say that even though they, they just say, oh, no, don't worry about it. But I'll kind of say, I think this is what you mean by that is you've forgiven me, right? <laughs> just so we can say those words. Good. What else? Yeah. Um, if there's something that you note in, in the topic of uh, uh, giving scriptural correction, yeah. if there's something that you see somebody doing that you're pretty sure is unbiblical, just from your own perspective, I guess, but you can't think of any like, scripture off the top of your head that applies to it, what would be your first step to find something that you know, kind of does apply to that, so that can be used to? Yeah, that's a great question, and it kind of speaks to a bigger issue is that this, this giving correction thing is, I, my recommendation, in, you know, is that it should not be done quickly. 
It's something that you should really think through and pray through. And so if you're just, you have a sense that this is out of line scripturally, but you don't know specifically, well, then it, you shouldn't say anything until you really do know. You know, and so I would then, you know, either do the research yourself or maybe, you know, a leader in the organization, maybe not tell them about this person right now, but just say, so this particular behavior, my sense is this is out of bounds scripturally. Do you know of some verses that talk about that or some places that talk about that? So I would, I would get really clear on, on that because you don't want to correct people over things that are just personal irritations or personal preferences. You know, like, I don't like the way you cut your hair, you know, that shirt looks weird on you. I mean, those kinds of things. It's just, you know, that, that's, that, you know that's irritating. So you need to take the time to do that. And that kind of brings up another idea is that um, I, I would recommend that you spend a, a great amount of time praying for that person. And I would ramp up the encouragement. You know, one of the things that I've been taught is that for every word of correction, you need to have at least 10 words of encouragement surrounding it. Because it's just hard for us to receive correction. And, um, and they, they need to be honest words of encouragement, not, you know, not flattery. But you know, look for things that you can say about another person that really is honest and encouraging to them. So if you see something, find out if it is in violation of scripture, start ramping up the encouragement, start ramping up the prayer. Um, Harold Bullock, the, the pastor of this church, uh, that actually was the one that you know, compiled these hard attitudes that we use. Um, years ago, I, I asked him something. I was struggling with something, and I asked him for input on an issue. And he said something that I, I've never forgotten. He said, well, Bevan, I've been praying for two years that you would ask me that question. And I thought, well, Harold, why didn't you say something? I mean, I said that. Why didn't you say something? He said, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't think you were ready to hear it yet. And the thought, too, to think that he's been praying for two years about this? I mean, there's a guy that really cares about me. You know, so when he shared it, I was ready. You know, so that's why you pray. You have a sense of timing. God, I, I don't want this to be a club on this person. I want it to be of help. So you pray, and you wait for the right time, and you bathe the relationship and encouragement, and then allow God to open up the opportunity to bring it up. So this is not a quick, you know, walking around, hey, stop doing that. Hey, knock that off, you know, kind of encouragement. Or correction, rather. Great question. What else? Yeah. How do you genuinely like put the goals and interests of somebody like above and around that you just really don't like? Like how do you genuinely show love for them? Um, I don't know an answer to that other than you you just pick an action that is in fact loving and do it in spite of how you feel. And then you and then you repeat that. <laughs> um, and that 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 often is. Um, how it is. Um, it's, it's, you know, one of the unfortunate things in our culture is, is that we have defined love primarily as an emotion. And so we feel like even if it's an act of love, if we really are helping someone, that if we don't feel, if we really struggle with them, then, then we don't, it's not real love. But in scripture, love is, is, a, is an action. And it's, it's, not, it's not primarily a feeling, it's a choice. And the other thing we get tripped up in love is that we, we allow other people to define what love is. 
and we allow them to manipulate us that way. It's like, well, if you really love me, you do, you know. Oh, okay, well, I guess I better do that. You know, no, no, no. Love is, is a free choice, not a forced manipulation. It's a free choice to do something that's a benefit for the other person. So if someone's trying to manipulate me, I'll, I'll say no to whatever they, they want me to do out of force, but I'll try to think of something else I can do that they haven't asked me to do that is, in fact, loving to them. So it's just a sheer force of the will to do something beneficial. And my working definition of love is uh, inconveniencing myself for the benefit of somebody else. What can I do that would be inconvenient but would benefit them? Does that help? No, you know, not going to help the emotions, but yeah. Uh, it's very similar to the other question, that is that, that forgiving is, is, a, is a repeated choice against the emotions, uh, especially when the hurt is, has been deep or if it's been prolonged over time. Um, it, it's hard for us, if someone asks for forgiveness, just to let it go because it was such a deep hurt. It was such a prolonged wrong. And so what you have to do is every time that thought comes up, the bitterness or the rage comes up or the, oh, I can't believe they did this to me comes up, it's a chance for you to literally control your mind. So I'd recommend that you memorize some verses about forgiveness so that you can, uh, I mean, one of the skills that's really important for you to learn at this age is how to control your mind. I mean, most of our, most people's minds are like a junkyard dog. You know, just kind of, you know, goes here, goes here, goes here. But you need to get a leash on that thing. And scripture memorization is probably one of the best ways to control your mind. So get, you know, maybe four or five verses on forgiveness. And um, be ready to use those verses when, that, when the emotions and the bitterness towards that person come up. Just talk, you know, quote this verse on forgiveness. Um, and part of the verses that I would look at memorizing is ones that describe how much you've been forgiven. The reason we don't forgive is because we have a, um, a small view of how much we've been forgiven. I mean, if we could actually see the amount of forgiveness that we've been granted from God, um, you know, it would be easier for us to forgive a smaller offense. So, you know, what that means is that you probably, and we all struggle with this, but you probably have a too small of a view of, of how, how much mercy God has given you. I mean, Jesus, when the, the woman who was a prostitute came in and was crying and um, wiped his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. And all the Pharisees were, does he not know who this woman is? She's a prostitute. I can't believe that he's allowing this to happen. And Jesus says at the end, says that she loves much because she's been forgiven much. I mean, she can't believe that she's been forgiven for all that she's done. And he was saying, in contrast, you guys don't love worth anything because you don't think you've been forgiven that much, but you have. So that love for people and being willing to forgive people is attached to our understanding of 
how much we've been loved, how much we've been given. So I, that's why I would memorize and I would ask God to begin to really show me, you know, how merciful he's been to me. That's a great question. What else? Okay. Now these, um, just so you know, these hard attitudes, as you can probably tell by what they are, is they're, um, they're, they require sustained effort. You don't check these off. Done. <laughs> Got this one. I mean, it's just, you just keep working on these. Keep working on these. So it's not about perfection. It's about continuing to adjust to these. So let me wrap up in prayer, and then I think dinner is next. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for showing us a different way to live. And these, these attitudes are so true and so right and um, so hard for us to do. We are so selfish and we hang on to bitterness and we want to hide our sin rather than be honest about it. And we lack the humility to receive any correction from anyone else. And we lack the real love and courage to give it to anyone else. And we really uh, struggle clearing up relationships. We struggle following authorities because we tend to think that we know better. That I pray that you would you'd give us power as we begin to take steps and practice these in this area, that you would, Holy Spirit, you'd convict us uh, when we step out of bounds, you would bring us back on track. That as a result of practicing these attitudes and building them into our lives, that we would taste the joy of the kind of relationships over time that that really bring fulfillment and bring delight. We thank you for communicating this truth to us. Help us now as we put these into practice. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Thanks, everyone.